Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. As kids, we all looked up to our favorite athletic heroes. After all, they were taller than us, so looking up at them literally was a realistic requirement as well as a figure of speech. In this episode of When Football Was Football, we'll look back at the life and career of a Pro Football Hall of Famer who was one of those very few athletes who also played pro basketball in Major League Baseball. He was an All-American in football, won a Rose Bowl, was selected as an All-Pro eight times, and was the finest field goal kicker of his generation. He could shoot hoops from the outside and his speed could easily turn singles into doubles on the baseball diamond. In short, he was a giant among men even though he stood just five foot eight inches tall and weighed only about 155 pounds. His name was John Leo Driscoll, but we can call him Paddy. Despite his size, Driscoll was a dynamo on the football field who could run, pass, kick, tackle, fake, swerve, leap, and intimidate. He did it all during a time when players were expected to do it all by playing both offense and defense, taking infrequent rest, and enduring inadequate medical attention while wondering if they could recover from the brutality of the sport on Sunday and then report in time for their real job on Monday morning. Driscoll was born on January 11, 1895 to Timothy and Elizabeth Driscoll. Nine days later, the infant was baptized into the Catholic Church by the Reverend H.P. Smythe at St. Mary's Church in Evanston, Illinois. Petty would spend his formative years in Evanston, starring in football, basketball, and baseball at Evanston Township High School, before moving on to nearby Northwestern University. After the 1916 football season at Northwestern, Driscoll was named to several All-American teams, excelling as a quarterback, halfback, defender, and kicker. And he also played baseball for the Wildcats. During the summer of 1917, while still in college, Driscoll played professional baseball for the Chicago Cubs. During his brief tenure with the Cubs of just 13 games, the rugged infielder batted only 107 with three hits and 28 at-bats. Unfortunately for Driscoll, his flirtation with the Cubs as a professional ball player apparently cost him his final year of football eligibility later in 1917. He quickly moved over to try his hand at professional football that fall, signing with the Hammond, Indiana Club, where the pleased Hammond Times newspaper described Driscoll as only 152 pounds, but he is fast, cool, and heady. In an early game at Davenport, Iowa on October 14, 1917, a writer with the dubious name of Knock M. Knock M. Stiff, I can't even say it, it's so wacky, with an N for knock, N-O-C-K. He wrote for the Quad City Times and was enthralled with Driscoll's performance in a 9-3 Hammond victory over Davenport. 
He said it was all Driscoll for the Hammond Club. He ran 65 yards for the only touchdown of the game and booted a drop kick from the 30-yard line that helped bolster up the score. Besides that, he played a wonderful defensive game. Well, Mr. Smith further described Patty's running abilities as wriggling snake dancing. Never heard that before to describe a rusher. One of my favorite stories about Patty during his time with Hammond concerns his toughness, as was reported by the Chicago Evening Post. It said, when tackled while running back a punt, Patty Driscoll was knocked out on his feet. Without being aware of the fact, he drop kicked a field goal from the 53 yard line after calling signals for a forward pass. He had to be taken out of the game. Since this was not a punting or field goal situation, someone asked Driscoll at halftime, why the heck had he decided to go with the long drop kick? Patty replied, what drop kick? And what's the score anyway? Apparently there was no concussion protocol in 1917. With World War I ongoing, Driscoll passed his military physical test on January 31, 1918, and was soon assigned to the Great Lakes Naval Training Center in Illinois. Ironically, he would soon be a teammate of recent University of Illinois student George Hallis on the Great Lakes sports teams, initiating a lifelong friendship with Hallis. During the war, many collegiate teams were either disbanded or played a brief schedule due to a lack of personnel since most young men were in the service. With the January 1st, 1919 Rose Bowl, two service teams met with Great Lakes, including Driscoll and Hallis in starting roles, stopping Mare Island from California 17-0. Famed columnist Red Smith recalled that the offensive firepower of Driscoll was the turning point in the game after one of Driscoll's passes was a 32-yard touchdown to Hallis, while Patty's booming punts, including one 60-yarder, kept Mare Island deep in its own territory. As Smith stated in 1956, in all the years since, no one has seen a finer football player than the little guy who led Great Lakes to victory over the Marines of Mare Island. His performance earned high praise from Walter Camp, the acknowledged football expert of the time, who said that Driscoll was the greatest quarterback he ever saw in action. Legendary sports writer Walter Eckersall described, Petty as the greatest football player at Northwestern since the adoption of the Ford Pass. That was according to Edward Prowl of the Chicago Tribune. With his departure from the service in early 1919, Driscoll spent a couple of months playing for the minor league Los Angeles Angels of the Pacific Coast Baseball League, but his inconsistent hitting led to his release in late May. That fall, in 1919, he hooked up again with Hallis as both returned to the gridiron for the Hammond All-Stars. When the American Professional Football Association, now called the NFL, was founded in 1920, Hallis urged Driscoll to join him on the Decatur Staley's team. Instead, Patty accepted a lucrative offer of $300 per game to play with the Racine, then the Chicago Cardinals. Back when a loaf of bread cost 11 cents and an NFL franchise could be had for only $100, this was truly an unusual economic opportunity and Patty did not disappoint. He was named the first all-pro quarterback in the history of the league and was usually the entire offense for the Cardinals as the team finished with a 6-2-2 record. 
In the winter of 1920, Driscoll showed another side of his athletic ability when he was also a standout for the Whiting, Indiana Red Crowns professional basketball team. The Fort Wayne, Indiana Sentinel described Driscoll as a speedy forward, clever on his feet, and a dead shot with the basketball. Driscoll was with the Cardinals through the 1925 season when the Cardinals won their first NFL title. He was named an All-Pro four times during that stretch and served as the Cardinals head coach from 1920 through 1922, compiling a 21-8-4 overall record. In 1924, his 55-yard field goal was believed to be the longest field goal in NFL history, and that lasted for several years, and it came via dropkick. Patty Boudin estimated 40 dropkick field goals during his NFL career. One of his most famous games occurred on Thanksgiving Day in 1925 when the heralded Red Grange made his debut with the Chicago Bears against the Chicago Cardinals. A sellout crowd of over 34,000 was on hand at Wrigley Field and watched, although with a bit of disappointment, as the teams battled to a 0-0 tie. Driscoll had done his best to keep the game close for the Cards by punting over 20 times, with the majority of those kicks being away from the dangerous Grange, thus limiting Red's opportunities to break one of the returns for a touchdown. Driscoll later remarked that punting directly to Red Grange was like grooving a pitch down the middle to Babe Ruth. Overall, Grange could do little against the tough Cardinals defense and the careful placement of Driscoll's punts. As he was leaving the field, walking alongside Grange, the players were met by a chorus of loud boos from the crowd. Driscoll mentioned this to his wife and said that he really felt badly that the crowd was booing the acclaimed rookie Red Grange, apparently for his poor performance during the game. His wife simply responded by saying, they're not booing Red, dear, they're booing you for not giving him a chance to return those kicks. Then prior to the 1926 season, the cash-strapped Cardinals agreed to sell the services of Driscoll to the Bears for $3,500, and Patty was reunited once again with his old teammate George Hallis. Driscoll played with the Bears through 1929 and paid dividends immediately for his new team when he was named an All-Pro in 1926 and topped the Bears as well as the NFL in scoring with 86 points. Included in that total were a league record 12 field goals. As was typical of pro football at the time, Driscoll needed to work another job to make ends meet while playing football. Beginning in 1924, he began a nearly two-decade stretch of coaching high school and college players. He started as a coach and athletic director at St. Mel's High School in Chicago, where his basketball team won the 1925 championship of the National Catholic Interscholastic Tournament at Chicago's Loyola University. He later moved on to the position of head football coach at Marquette University beginning in 1937. But Patty was never very far away from the Bears. After leaving Marquette in 1940, he served as a Bears assistant from 41 through 55. When George Hallis decided to retire from coaching in 1956 and 57, he handpicked Patty to succeed him and Driscoll promptly led the Bears with a 9-2-1 record to the NFL title game before losing 47-7 to the Giants in the championship match. In 1957, the Bears stumbled to a 5-7 mark under Driscoll 
And by the time 1958 rolled around, Hallis had unretired and took back the head coaching reins of the Bears. However, Patty remained with the Bears as a vice president from 58 through 62 and was the team's director of planning and research until the time of his passing in 1968 at the age of 73. During his playing career, Patty Driscoll was selected an All-Pro eight times and was named to the All-Decade team for the 1920s. In recognition of his accomplishments, Patty was selected for the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1965 and then the College Football Hall of Fame in 1974. He will always be remembered as not only one of the greatest pioneers of pro football, but also as one of the finest gentlemen. He was viewed with respect by teammates and opponents alike during his wonderful athletic career that took him from Evanston High School to Northwestern, to the Chicago Cubs, to Great Lakes, to Hammond, to the Cardinals, and finally to the Bears. Hard to believe that standing just five foot eight inches tall, Driscoll was indeed a professional athlete in three different sports. Finally, we'll share one more story, and this one's from Patty's college coaching days, and it resulted in the first negative comment about Patty that we were able to uncover. During the week before Marquette was to play Boston University one year, Coach Patty was unhappy with the team's practice habits, as told by a columnist David Condon of the Chicago Tribune, who said, two days before the game, Driscoll sent out his assistant, Tarzan Taylor, to get some marshmallows and other goodies. Then, Driscoll lit a bonfire on the practice field, assembled the squad, and said, Fellas, no practice today. You can't play football anyhow, so we'll just toast some marshmallows. Well, of course, Marquette uh, went out and won that game. And that led to the only negative statement about Driscoll when Tarzan Taylor remembered the incident years later and said, Oh, yeah. Patty burned the marshmallows. Thank you for spending a part of your day with us at the Sports History Network. Please join us for the next episode of When Football Was Football, when we'll explore why the Chicago Cardinals left that city over 60 years ago. Thank you for listening. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. We at the Sports History Network are so glad to introduce to you a new addition to our lineup, the Gridiron Greats Magazine Podcast. It's a weekly podcast that focuses on the history and memorabilia of North American football since its inception in 1869. It's hosted by Bob Swick, the publisher and editor of Gridiron Greats Magazine, and Joe Squires, a longtime contributor to that magazine. The podcast was launched in 2017 and has over 150 episodes that you can listen to now on a Sports History Network, as well as your favorite podcast provider. So join Bob and Joe as they go through football history, talking about the memorabilia and the great legendary players and games of the American Gridiron on the Gridiron Greats Magazine Podcast.